is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about leading and motivating teams. Now, we're going to do this in a little bit of a different way. We're going to explore my guest's experience in three very different leadership capabilities. One is with a Navy team. Two is coaching soccer or football, depending which part of the world you sit in, teams. And the third is shadowing a master coach. And we're going to look at all of those experience and try to understand what it takes to win the team over to you as a leader, particularly when the team knows more than you do. We're going to look at how you build the team and keep everyone motivated. And we're going to look at how you manage some strong personalities. And lastly, ask the questions of what is it that a master coach as in a football soccer coach, can teach us about leadership in general. So with me today is Chris Brady. Now, Chris has had a very varied experience in his working life. He's been a line worker at Chrysler in Detroit. He's managed a bookmaker's shop. He's been a land surveyor. He's been a semi-professional footballer. He was in the Navy as an officer in the Navy for 16 years. He's been a management consultant. He's been held various positions at universities, but today he is Professor of Management Studies and Director of the Salford University Center for Sports Business. Um, Chris has authored several books on as many varied subjects as his career has been varied, but two in particular stand out. One is called The Rules of the Game, and the second, a bestseller, is called The 90-Minute Manager. Um, Chris also contributes a business model to the Union of European Football Association's Pro License Management course. He's played, coached, and managed football slash soccer semi-professionally throughout his working life. And I can tell you from talking to Chris, his passion lies in the area of football slash soccer. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to first talk, start talking about your experiences leading teams. And there are several places in our conversations I know a little bit about your history. But I want to talk about times when you've taken over the leadership team. The team knew more about the content than you did. And one of those was when you joined the Navy. So tell us about the situation you walked into and how did you manage to succeed? Um, well, it was, it was um, challenging for me. First, can I say that one important distinction that you've already made actually is very crucial. You're 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 correct that there wasn't. Uh, I wasn't a content expert. I didn't actually understand the job, the content of the job, in my first Navy job. But it actually turned out that I was an expert in getting things done, and that's what that team actually really needed. Another distinction is that sometimes uh, we go into an area where there is a content expert. And they just think they know more than you. So make those two distinctions to start with. Now, when I joined the Navy, they all knew more than me. Um, I joined the Navy very late in life. By Navy standards, I was 32 years old. But I was hired for a very specific job, which was my educational and intelligence system specialisms. But then, as soon as I joined the Navy, I was thrust into a job where I had no knowledge of the content whatsoever. 
The British Navy is very small, and personnel basically go where they're told to go and where they're needed. So I ended up being sent to command a section of our underwater warfare training establishment charged with training sonar personnel. Now, you may be aware of what these acronyms mean. I didn't even know what the acronyms meant. I didn't know that sonar is actually an acronym for sound, navigation, and ranging. And, it, and that's the equipment the Navy uses to, to detect underwater enemy targets, mostly enemy submarines and so on. So I was the new boy, not only to the sonar job, but to the Navy itself. And everybody in the room, when I walked into the room on the first day, knew that. They, they were all older than me. They were all in their mid-40s, uh, late 40s. You know, as I say, I was young. I was 32. So it was absolutely important not to try to, and we use a term in the Navy, to blag them. Uh, I think you use BS in the US, but don't try and be something that you're not. A good friend gave me some great advice. He said, when you get into that sort of environment where they know more than you, never instruct them. Always question and keep that question layer by layer as you drill down. And they, the domain experts, those people in that job, they actually know the answers, but they, they may not know the questions. You're the guy that's going to ask the right questions. If I, can I give you a quick example? We, we, sure. When I arrived there, they were redoing their training manual. And the, the, the people who worked in that area used to be called TAS people, T-A-S, which was Torpedo Anti-Submarine. And so in the manual, they had how you need to move torpedoes around the ship. But actually, in the modern Navy, you didn't have to actually do that, but it remained in the manual. So I was able to say to them, listen, guys, what's this? What's this all about? Why are we talking about torpedoes when we don't have to use them now? They were then able to go, actually, you're right. We're thinking about that. Why do we do that? Right, let's get rid of that. That's fine. And we immediately struck up that sort of, I'll ask the questions that are a bit dumb and a bit stupid. If you've got a great answer for them, we'll keep that going. But if you haven't got a great answer, then can you sort of suggest something else? So you also need to explain to them what your role is. And your role in this organization is to make sure that they can be great at their role. So it's very much a coaching role. Ask them what they need to be able to do to get things done better around here and then listen. And then more importantly, act on what they've told you. There's nothing worse than just appearing to care. And that's, that's how it all started for me in the Navy. It's so fabulous. I love that. Um, that even in that time before you were a coach, you see your job as leading the team as being a coach, making sure that people are really great in their job. One of my favorite CEOs, all-time favorite CEOs, says, if you don't know what to do, ask people. They have a funny habit of being able to tell you. And so, <laughs> But then you're right. You have to act on it. You have to do something about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I did was I, I, I was very open about, and to a certain extent, very vulnerable. I was very transparent about what I saw as the opportunities to do things better, but only if they agreed and I could pull them along. I was also absolutely clear where the content knowledge lay, and it clearly wasn't with me, but I was also absolutely clear about what I thought they were bad at and what I thought I could help with. For example, they, they, didn't, they didn't really get the fact that senior officers didn't understand them, didn't understand their jobs, and needed persuading, needed influencing, needed politicking. And I said, right, well, leave that to me, guys. That's what I'm good at. And so I asked them quite simply, what do you need most that you haven't got? 
And it turned out, the very first time I asked that, it turned out to be a very simple thing. I can't remember what it was now, but it was a very tiny thing, like, we need more, we need more widgets or whatever. I closed the meeting, sent a note round to everybody asking them if I'd correctly understood what they really wanted and told them I'd do my very best to deliver that before our next meeting seven days later. I delivered it. Okay, we now have a relationship. And things went on from there with me asking questions, listening to their answers, acting on that, acting on what I'd heard, and telling them why I was working on that and how long it would take to deliver it. But it was also really important that I would also tell them, no, I'm not going to be acting on your advice because I don't agree with this. Thank you very much, but we're going down this particular route. So being fairly strong on those points. And once you've established that sort of relationship, they're like, fine, okay, let's leave him to get on with that. We've got enough to be getting on with over here. So how long did it take you to win this team over? So you walk in, you're 32, they're all in their late 40s, you know nothing about their content expert expertise and they're deep experts. How long did it take? I would say it took about to the to the end of that first iteration of I can do something for you. I mean, it's sort of like great, great players in football teams and all, all athletic teams. They're mostly interested in what you can do for them. And if you, if, you, if you demonstrate very early on that you can do stuff for them that they can't really be bothered with that, so that they can get on with their, their jobs, they will, they will come along very quickly. Now, there's another thing. Obviously, at those, in those days, this was an all-male environment, and I was a sort of a semi-famous footballer. So I had a bit of street cred that was not attached to the Navy. Um, and a lot of the guys were football fans and they knew me. And so that, that really helped a lot. And, uh, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that was a major contributor, that we were a load of guys together and I'd done guy stuff. <laughs> I, yeah, I've heard other people say similar experiences in their lives, but I've also heard of managers who bringing somebody in in the same scenario to lead a team sets them up, sets the individual they're bringing up comparably, as in, you don't know this person, but let me tell you why you should know this person, and let me tell you why I'm counting on them, and let me tell you what it is that I think they can bring to the team, so that you walk in with some credibility that's not just your own doing. No, that didn't happen. That doesn't happen in the Navy. You just get sent somewhere. Yeah. You're an officer. Um, that's one of the things that I really didn't understand and, and I really needed to learn was that I didn't understand how rank matters. I'd just come into the Navy as somebody who'd been working for 15, 16 years already. And so I came into this totally alien culture for me. Not the privilege of, of, of rank, but the, the fact that I saw myself as one of the guys. You know, I'm just here, I'm the boss, but that's fine. I'm just one of the guys. But they didn't want me to be one of the guys. They wanted to know that they could trust me to look after them, not to be one of them. And they just assumed that I would do that as an officer, um, but they assumed that I'd be an idiot as far as anything to do with their job was concerned, and they'd have to basically take charge of me. What the difficult bit was to say, well, actually, I'm still going to be in charge of this situation, and I'm going to make the final decisions. And I, I suppose getting that sort of level of trust took maybe, uh, maybe a month or so, but it wasn't that long. It was just a question of demonstrating that I could add value to, to, to their team. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, 
So were there some early mistakes along the way? Well, that was the biggest one, not understand trying to be one of one of them trying to sort of fit in and sort of say like we're all guys together you know we should be getting on with this sort of stuff and the biggest is that they didn't want that they wanted a boss you know so when we look at I think what's interesting now when we had the um, flattening of the managerial structures in the, in the 80s when you know we were you know we didn't want this um, hierarchical structure and that actually a lot of people uh, crave that sort of structure. They like that sort of structure. And one of the questions I ask when I go into companies often, I'll ask the senior management, you know, what's the management structure here? And they say, oh, it's very flat. We're all on the same level. We all get guys together and so on and so forth. Then I walk up to the first person I can meet and I say, excuse me, could you point out who your boss is? And they go, it's that guy over there. And I say, okay, so there is a structure here. It's just nobody likes talking about it. So a lot of people actually do get some comfort out of the hierarchical structure and knowing who, who reports to who, who makes the decisions, who's responsible for their life. Right. You know, these, these, these are people that, um, one of them, you know, you talked about talking about CEOs. When, when, I, when I mentor CEOs who are newly created, the most difficult task is to get them to understand that no matter how they see themselves, the workforce see them as a person who can have a major effect on their lives. They're the person who can promote them, demote them, get them a rise, sack them. That's who that that's who you are now when you're the boss. It's a massive responsibility, so you shouldn't take it lightly. But it's very difficult for people to understand I'm the boss. I'm surely I'm this same guy I was fifteen years ago when I left school. No, you're not. In their lives you're somebody quite important. You might be completely unimportant in your own life. Uh, and you only need to go home and your wife will explain to you exactly how unimportant you are. But in that job, you are important in their lives. And it's quite difficult for newly created CEOs to understand that. Yeah, I think I think it's hard for people in leadership to understand what kind of a shadow they cast in general. Yeah, exactly, yeah, it's a shadow, it's a shadow issue. <clears throat> I want to come back to this whole notion about having structure. So, you know, we all say how, uh, you know, hierarchy is dead and the millennials don't want hierarchy and don't respect it and all sorts of things. I was working with a team this week and they're a fairly young team, meaning they're not all 40s and 50s, experienced, seasoned, fairly senior. And one of the complaints, it's a leaderless team, meaning they're all peers on the team trying to accomplish something. One of the complaints that comes out is one person says, I'm not bought in to having a leaderless team. We need somebody who sets the agenda, who makes the decisions, who keeps us on track. Even if it's not a formal in-control leadership, it is a guidance, a facilitation role. And, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for that kind of structure, exactly as you said. I think you're absolutely so, right there. I think the, um, the interesting thing is that... Um, if I can give you an analogy, and I think it really works well, in Northern Ireland, during the troubles in Northern Ireland, when the troops would go out into the streets, they'd go out in, in, in groups of six or seven, which were called sticks. And the interesting thing, obviously, there'd be, a sen- there'd be an officer in charge and a senior non-commissioned officer next, and then six or seven of the, of the normal soldiers. But when they came under attack, the person that knew, that saw where the fire was coming from took charge immediately, irrespective of rank, because that was the person that had all the information that was going to keep them all alive. When they all got safely positioned, 
then the rank structure would reintroduce itself. And I think what you're describing with the millennials is that when there's a particular event or something particular, like you said about your CEO saying just ask people, if somebody knows how to get out of this situation or how to do that, let's, let's let that guy lead or that person lead at that particular moment. Let's not worry about rank structure. Then we can go back to a more formal structure at some later stage. But as we're working our way through problems and solutions, trying to get solutions, is there somebody who really gets this? If there is, you know, use that person. If you've got an expert in the team, listen to them. Yeah. And not worry so much about what that says about your own status within the team. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. But actually, your status, will be, your status will be enhanced by saying, hang on, uh, you know, Jane knows much better than I do how to, how to do this particular thing. Jane, can you take charge of this? And Jane will step up, and, and then then they'll step back. They'll step back later on because maybe they don't want to be the leader every day. They just want to be the leader in that particular area that they're very confident with. Okay, all right. Now let's turn to another time where you took on an impossible mission, and I think those are your words: a genuinely impossible mission, creating something that didn't exist in a very short time frame. What happened, and how did you make it work? Um, well, I, I, as I said to you before, I thought it genuinely was an impossible situation when I when I arrived. So when I was interviewed, I was interviewed, look, we're going to start up a business school. Um, you, you know, you've run business schools before. You've been in charge of this sort of stuff. We want you to come. We want you to come in and start this up. And I'm like, great, that's fine. And I turn up at the I turn up at the building on the first day, and I meet with the CEO. Now, this was. Uh, an unusual situation in the UK because it was the first um, for-profit degree-awarding institute in the UK at the time. It was so nobody had ever had a for-profit. So we were a publicly quoted company about to de- about to award degrees in a country that had never had degrees awarded by anything other than a thing called a university. So that was what I was worried about to start with. But I arrived on the first day, which was just before Christmas, you know, sort of early December or something like that. And the CEO came to me and said, great to have you on board. By the way, I've just been to the stock exchange and I've said to traders and to and to um, the finance people, I've made a statement that our company will have the university up and running by the end of January, which was like six weeks away. Uh, and I said, fine, um, that's great. How many students have we got? And he said, none. And I said, right, so, so I'm sorry. So we, 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 we're actually starting a school in six weeks' time with no students in it. He said, well, that's your job. That's why we've hired you. Go and get some students and make sure they're in there by the end of January because that's what I've promised the stock, stock market. And so after the immediate panic, um, I sat down with one member of staff. So it was me and one member of staff. I thought there was going to be a whole school there, which, by the way, tells you another story about my lack of due diligence, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but anyway, so there's myself and my, and, my, and my assistant and no students. So we immediately went to marketing and said, right, let's get marketing. Let's do this as quick as we can. Let's get, and we started to get one or two people phone in. And that's when I realized, right, okay, what I need to be doing now is I need to be telling everybody a story of the future because there's no story of the present at the moment. <laughs> we haven't got anybody. And we started to say, this is what we, this is, this is what we want to be. This is who we want to be. 
by the way, you're the first. There's only been a few number of you. Let's, let's get together. Let's do this together. Let's make this our, our, you know, our project, not just me hiring students and us teaching you, but you're going to be able to teach yourselves. We're going to involve you in the learning process. We're going to involve you in all of this stuff. And we managed to get, by the end, in that six weeks, we managed to get 15 students. So the school opened with 15 students. We then went into more more dedicated marketing mode and by the September, so the first intake of undergraduate students, we got 45 undergraduate students. 12 months later, we had 350 students and we went on from there. But it was about sort of saying, well, okay, we haven't got much of a story to tell because there's no history. But what we can tell is a story about what it's going to be like, what fun it's going to be and how great it's going to be and how everybody's going to be involved. So those students actually became sort of members of the team of developing and the, the, the learning became the business. And so, you know, it ended, up be, it ended up being great. It ended up being a great experience and uh, one that I'm very proud of. So, Chris, did you manage to keep those 15 students or did they exit yep, along the way? No, every one of those 15 students. We, we launched, what we did was we launched, because the other half of the business had um, some expertise in accountancy training, but no degree. And what we managed to do, the first one we launched, and that was another decision I made, let's launch a master's degree in finance because we could... Extra, we could um, we could move the brand. The brand was a little bit elastic because we had this accountancy bit in there, and so we could move the brand and say, "Look, we we know stuff about business." So we did the first one we did was an MSc in finance, and I only then I could once we got the fifteen students, I could hire in the faculty, and I hired them in part time as practitioners from the city. The great thing as well, we were in the, we were actually located in the city of London, you know, five minutes from the Stock Exchange, two minutes from the Bank of England. So I could get um, part-time uh, practitioner faculty to come in and teach. The students loved that. We could get them into internships and so on. So we kept all 15 students for the entire two years of their MSc, and they all graduated and did fantastically well. Okay. Chris, incredible story. I can't believe you pulled that one off. We could be talking about it for ages along the way. So if I summarize these two experiences and I say, what does it take to walk in and lead a team, particularly when other people on the team know a heck of a lot more than you're going to know, I have one that there is this establishment of some sort of camaraderie or credibility, whether that's your football history or your background or something else that makes you seem like a reasonable person to work with. The second one is a willingness to ask questions and not feel like you have to provide answers, even if those questions feel like they're dumb ones, that there's nothing wrong with that. Your job is to ask the questions, to drill down with the level of questions and get people to see things that they hadn't necessarily seen before. Third, your job is to make sure that everybody else is great in their roles. So that involves asking people what it is that they need and being willing to Figure out what you can do about that. So I love your question. What do you need most that you haven't got? And find a way to deliver on that one so that you're adding value to the team. And then I think the fourth or fifth one here is, you know, don't try to be one of them necessarily. And don't try to BS your way through it. Um, Just say what you know, what you think, what you believe, and make the decisions you need to make and move on. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. There's one. There's one thing I was thinking as you were talking there is that, and this is. I think this is probably the most important one that I forgot is that. Don't imagine that everybody is like you. 
I, I personally love change. I love sort of dynamic situations. It turns out that a lot of people don't. <laughs> so when you go in somewhere and go, hey, guys, this is fantastic. We're going to change everything. We're going to do so-and-so. 80% of the people stood in front of you might be going, oh, no, oh, God. So you, you have to consult about that. But ultimately, you might have to drive that change through. It could actually be the reason you were hired to, to, to drive that through. But one of the biggest problems I've had in my career was when I was hired once to really do radical change in, in, in a university environment, which, as you know, is a very uh, conservative environment. And I was hired in there because the, the vice chancellor or the president of the university intellectually understood there needed to be radical change. But emotionally, he couldn't cope with it. And so it was three years of constant battle of me trying to do what he actually wanted, but him being very emotionally uncomfortable with that, with that level of chaos and, and, uh, and activity. So I think it's important to understand just because you think this is a great idea and you're thrilled by it and you have a massive passion by it, it doesn't mean everybody else is going to be like that in the, in the organisation to which you've arrived. Well, then the secret is to figuring out how is it that you're going to convert some of those people into being excited and passionate about those kind of changes. Uh, and also, and we and we should know the look this is because this, you know, when when people are talking about management, people forget that also sometimes people have to leave. Yeah, yeah, that's never fun. <laughs> no, it's not, and that was what happened in that particular job, and so it was two or three years of. You know, actually looking back, two or three years of really getting stuff done, but two or three years that were that were difficult. Okay. I can ima- I can well imagine, and especially when you get a lot of people up against, we're not wanting to go in the same direction you're wanting to go. Um, so any advice on that when you find yourself in a situation where you believe that you've been brought in, you've been hired, you believe the right way forward, in fact, is to drive through a massive change, but you've got a large number of people who are just not going there with you. Maybe intellectually they get it, but emotionally they don't. Any advice on how you bring people along? I think, as I say, I think the most important thing is to understand that they may not be as excited by it as you are. I think there's a really interesting story out of that. After I'd left that particular job, I met um, three or four guys on a train um, who, who basically I'd made redundant, who I'd sacked. Uh, and they were very kind to me, um, and, and we started chatting about our time there. And they said, you know, what were you proud of and what were you most disappointed about? And I said, um, I'm, I was really disappointed that I couldn't get across my vision for this, my strategy. Clearly, there's something wrong. I didn't explain it well. I didn't do it well. And this guy said to me, and it really threw me, he said, oh, no, no, we understood the strategy. We thought it was fantastic. We thought you were a really smart guy, and we thought it was really going to work very well. We just didn't want to do it. And I'm... And I was totally speechless. And as you know, Wanda, that's a rare occurrence. Yeah. And, I, and, and what it, I can't imagine being that person. And I'd never imagined that anybody just couldn't want to get better, to do things better, to move things on. And so I completely missed it. And so that's my advice is always just, just understand, the matter, you know, if you're going to start to drive stuff through, there are going to be people in that organization that no matter what you do, 
no matter how much they like you, they don't want to go in that direction. And you've either got to get rid of them at that stage or they're going to get rid of you. Okay. So why didn't these guys want to do it? They because didn't, they, I mean, they obviously they in, believe it. No, they were in a really nice life. Um, they'd been there for 20 years. Um, nobody was getting in their way. They had two or three days off when they could go and do their gardening or whatever. They had, they, and this is where I do defend them. They had signed up in academia for a world that said this is what academia is like. You know, you, you work for a couple of days, but then you go off and research on your own and you do your own thing. And your loyalty is ultimately to academia, not to that particular organization. But the world had changed around them. And in effect, in, a, in effect I come in as this nasty guy who's going to disrupt their lives. So why would they, why would they want to do what I want to do you know they didn't sign up for that uh, and you know when we spoke about it as friends afterwards I said you know that wasn't my fault you know we were both doing what we wanted to do but it was uh, it, it was um, we were at, we were at odds against each other but um, nobody was right or wrong we just had to accept it Boy, that's a fascinating story. You know, we often talk about differences in people's style and approaches to change, that some people are much more willing to embrace change. They get excited about it, and other people are a little more reluctant about it. Don't want to mess up what's going well. But this whole power of understanding why people are doing what they're doing and what they thought the contract was they signed up for is a huge impact on driving change. All right, we're going to take a break. With me today is Chris Brady. Chris has done a variety of things, as you've heard, from a line worker at Chrysler to being a Navy officer to being a management consultant and now being a professor of management studies and director of the Salford University Center for Sports Business. Now, Chris has also been a semi-professional football player and a coach for much of his life. When he comes back, when we come back, I want to talk about how all of this happens in the coaching world from the sports side. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Chris Brady. Um, Chris has done a variety of things, but currently is a professor of management studies and director of the Salford University Center for Business Sports. I should also say that he is teaching a business model in the Union for European Football Association's Pro License Management degree program course. Um, And Chris is the author of several books, one, The Rules of the Game, a second bestseller, The 90-Minute Manager, and he is a bit of a writer or co-writer, I should say, co-author with Carlo Ancelotti called Quiet Leadership. So, Chris, I know you have a deep passion for sports teams, and we've had lots of conversations comparing business teams and sports teams. So I want to focus right now on sports teams. And I'm interested in this phenomena when you bring a group of players together for football or soccer and you have top performers, highly competitive, strong individual players. How do you get them all joined together to operate as a team? And how do you deal with all the egos that are involved? Well, the first thing to do um, you'll often come into if you come into a team as a manager or a head coach, you have to understand you're going to come in. The players are already there, so they've already got their own behaviours, their own reg- rules and and uh, unwritten laws of how they're going to behave and everything. What you have to do is to establish a culture by demanding certain behaviours. So we know that culture, cultural change takes time, but the first step in changing a culture is to is to demand certain behaviours. And so they may be simple things. Um, the um, when you look, for example, at um, anywhere I want, I just want. I just want the whole thing to be smart. So I use that word smart quite a lot. And I say, we need to be smart in everything we do. So, you know, do we look smart? Um, do we behave smart? Do we make smart decisions? Uh, have we got a smart strategy? Have we got smart sales? And so on and so forth. And then I genuinely believe that people know what's smart and what's not smart. You know, they, they, they may mess around with it. But it's as simple as you can then say, once you've established the behavior that we're going to try and be smart all the time, is when something happens that's a mistake, you can li- literally say to the player, you know, he might make a mistake on the field or he might make a mistake in training, and you can literally say, you know, wonder, was that smart? And the guy will go, normally people will answer, actually, honestly. And I'll go, yeah, actually, that wasn't that smart. Um... Oh, it won't happen again. But the great thing about that is you can move on quickly and there are no recriminations. So, so everybody gets what the rule is. We, we're always trying to be smart. Now, if it, if it wasn't smart and it won't happen again, somebody might say, actually, actually, coach, I thought that was smart. Well, okay, well, let's talk about it. Let's work it through. But either way, it's not a big issue. It also fosters a, a no-excuses culture, you know, so we're not going to dwell on, on you know, recriminations and investigations and everything. Everybody knows what we're trying to do. 
is that smart? Is that a smart way to do it? Now, other coaches use other other things in different ways, but that, that's that, that's one of the one of the tricks I use. And after a while, you'll get the you know you'll walk in as the coach and you'll trip over something, and the whole team will go, "Was that smart, coach?" You know, so it becomes fun, and it be, but it becomes a mantra that people sort of understand that they're always trying to look for the smart way to do things, uh, and. To be honest, that's what wins you. That's what wins you football matches. That's interesting because I love the way in which you give feedback using that. You've established a set of behaviors. You've established a principle, a mantra, if you will. And now I can turn to people to give them feedback without saying you didn't do that well. Instead, I just ask a question. They can do their own critique at that point, and we can have an honest debate about whether it goes or goes smart, was smart or not smart. I can imagine why that's motivating and exciting. Now, what about the egos, Chris? How do you deal with star players who think they're – how do you deal with all the egos? you got a lot of them on the field. Well, yeah. I mean, what, the, the, the one thing you have to understand is that every single professional sports person is hugely selfish and hugely worried about themselves. Uh, and that selfishness can be insecurity as well. You know, they're worried about themselves. So you have to deal with them individually, but you can only deal with them individually within the team ethos. I mean, there's something that uh, I heard about the, 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 the Russian Revolution and uh, always makes me laugh. But simultaneously, Trotsky was the minister of war, but he was also something to do with the art industry in, in Moscow at the time. And all the artists came to Trotsky and said, you, under the Tsar, we were allowed to paint all these things. What are we allowed to paint under you? And Trotsky said, within the revolution, you can paint anything you want. Outside the revolution, nothing. And it's true, it's the same with teams. Within the team ethos, within the, the goals that the team are trying to achieve, well, I'm going to treat you individually, I'm going to look after you individually, I'm going to make sure you, you can perform as an individual and you can improve your life and your career, but only within what the team needs. And um, there's a great um, rugby coach, um, Clive Woodward, uh, who won the World Cup for England, and he used to talk about the diff- two different types of players he used to talk about energizers, people who come in and energize everybody else in the dressing room, and energy sappers. And he used to say, if you've got an energy sapper in the room, get rid of them as quick as you can. Individual egos can't be allowed to damage the team performance, and everybody needs to know that. So it's so we've established a team ethos, a team mantra, a team set of behaviors, what we're trying to achieve as a team. And then so long as you're playing to that, I'm going to do everything I can to treat you as an individual, to look after you as an individual, to help you improve your life, to help you meet your goals as an individual, but only in the context of the team achieving what we've set out as a team. Precisely. That's the difference between coaching and counseling and mentoring. Counseling and mentoring are for your individual benefit. Coaching is for your individual benefit within the team. Basically, when you leave this team and go to another team, I don't care about you anymore. You're gone. I only care about you as a coach within the environment of the team, your performance. I once worked for, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, I once worked for for Virgin Atlantic, and they were famed for the way in which they would look after their staff and so on and so forth. And uh, and they would say they really cared about, and, and, and I said, well, 
but you care about them in order to maximise their performance. No, 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 we care about them, we love them. I said, well, what about if they go to British Airways next week? Do you care about them then? Well, obviously not. I said, well, okay, let's, let's be honest about that. What I'm trying to do is I care about you so that you can improve your performance so it, it, so it improves the team performance and we both benefit from this. I mean, uh, and that's how you can achieve your, your, your goals. So I'm going to help you achieve your personal goals, but you, you need to do it within the team. Actually, okay. a, I can send you this and you can post it if you want, but there's a great quote by Michael Jordan, who, you know, one of the great individuals right. of all time. And he says, there are plenty of teams in every sport that have great players, but they never win anything. Most of the time, it's because those players aren't willing to sacrifice for the greater good of the team. The funny thing is, in the end, their unwillingness to sacrifice only makes achieving their individual goals more difficult. One thing I believe to the fullest is that if you think and achieve as a team, the individual accolades will take care of themselves. Now, there's one of the great individuals of all time saying, basically, you can get what you want through the team. So you have to convince the players that you're going to provide value added to their careers through the team. That's great. I love that quote. And yes, if you send it to me, I will um, post it. Michael Jordan is... I'm from North Carolina originally, and Michael Jordan is North Carolinian, so he is well-known in my world um, and a great player, a great uh, in many senses. Okay, so now I want to ask one more time. On occasion, you get an alpha player, an alpha person who just wants to be top dog, forgive my phrasing on that one, in absolutely everything. Is there do the same process with dealing with an alpha character as you just described? I'm going to help you achieve your goals, but in the context of the team. Or is there anything special about dealing with an alpha player? I think what's special um, about them is when they get to the absolute top level, they are hugely professional and hugely obsessive. And they're massive hard workers. I worked once with Alan Parker, the film director, who directed um, um, Mississippi Burning, um, Birdie. But one of the films he directed was Evita. And so I said to him, well, what was it like working with Madonna? He said, absolutely no problem at all. Um, and I said, why? He said, as long as you're as professional, as obsessive, and as hardworking as she is, She's no problem at all. If you drop your standards at all, she will be all over you because you're damaging her. And it was exactly the same. I worked with Carlo Ancelotti, as you mentioned earlier on, at Real Madrid. And one of the superstars of Real Madrid was Cristiano Ronaldo. This was a guy that when they came back from a game, maybe at 2 o'clock in the morning because they'd been traveling overnight, would go straight to the club and have his ice baths and everything to keep himself in perfect condition. So you better make sure that the ice bath is ready for him when he gets back at 2 o'clock in the morning. Because if you don't, it's going to affect his performance. It affects the team, so you look after him for everything. So what I've found with dealing with superstars is that they're actually really easy. They're superstars because they want to be excellent, which is what you want. And so let's, let's work it out. Now, all the other players actually understand that as well. They know that if Ronaldo's playing, then you're going to get a better chance of winning. So let's make sure that Ronaldo's comfortable and happy and everything because he, make, he benefits all of us. Do we then um, socialise with him afterwards? Maybe not, maybe we do. But, but you don't need to be friends within a, within a team, that sort of environment. 
Okay, so unlike this, we're still coming back to the same notion that it's in the context of the team's goals, the team, what we're trying to achieve as a team, and then you help the individual within the team do whatever it is they need to do to be excellent, to be at the top of their game, to achieve their goals in the context of the team. Everybody wins out of that one. So let's turn the tide for a minute. You spent um, a lot of time shadowing Carlo Ancelotti and helping write a book with him about his leadership style so famous coach of famous coach and famous player so Chris tell us what you learned from him well as you say he was a famous player um, so um, and, a, and a hugely successful coach he's one of the only coaches ever to have coached uh, the big five leagues you know Real Madrid AC Milan Chelsea Bayern Munich he's currently at Bayern Munich you know one of the biggest clubs in the world so this is a hugely successful guy but um, the book was called Quiet Leadership because that's who he is he's this quiet quiet guy and um, I think the key is that he views any group of players with whom he's involved as he would view his own family and he's from a very rural background in Italy so family is hugely important to him and he sees his job as taking care of people and uh, I mean there used to be on, on the back of Elvis's plane there used to be a thing that the TCB taking care of business on the on the tail fin yeah. and I think what should be on the tail fin of Carlo's plane if he, if he ever had a plane would be TCP taking care of people he, 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 he worries about that all the time he reasons, uh, actually, to be fair, that's not fair. He doesn't reason because this is who he is. He instinctively believes that if he looks after people who are naturally talented and enables them to get on with their jobs, then they're going to succeed. He provides the structure and the tactical system within which they're going to work, and then he lets them get on with it. Additionally, he had, he's got this huge, he commands tremendous loyalty. And this, and this goes back to the family thing again. And he's, in his turn, tremendously loyal himself to everybody. And he says that's maybe one of his faults, that sometimes he, he hangs on to players that maybe should have gone because of his loyalty. And he does all this very calmly, very quietly. He's just a nice guy. And there's a great American women's college basketball coach called Pat Summit. I don't know if you know Pat Summit. But she probably put it best when she was talking about how players view the coach. She said... They don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And Carlo, um, I interviewed David Beckham, who I'm sure most of your listeners will know. And when David Beckham was wanted to come back to England um, to become a member of the England team again when he was working in America, um, he asked the England coach, how can I get back in the England team? I need to play for a, a top team. And the England coach said, well, go to Milan. Carlo Ancelotti's there, and this is the phrase, he'll take care of you. So he's very much that guy, you know, that, that, that really you feel this tremendous loyalty to. And, but he does it in a very calm, quiet way. So the loyalty comes from his caring, but it yeah. obviously also comes from his success, his track record. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, but he'll tell you himself, um, when he moved from being a player to a coach, the first eight games, this goes back to the sort of street credit, if you like, the first eight games he lost. He said if he'd have been anybody else other than a famous player, he would have got the sack. But they hung on to him because he was from the area, he was a famous guy, and gradually turned it around and became more and more successful. Um, so he wasn't always successful, but he built on that, and, um, and he became more and more successful, and, and, is, and now this great coach. So he combines this 
he now has this level of authority um, and uh, status and uh, gravitas um, because of everything that he's won. Great. I'm curious in that. So what changed in him to go from losing the first eight games to now being a really successful coach? I think he, he said at the time that he thought everything was going well with the eight games and couldn't understand why they were losing. And he, he says that in the process of thinking about what he was going to change, things just came together. They, they got a lucky goal in one game. They won that game. They started to build their own confidence. They started to win, so they had confidence in him, uh, more confidence in him. He said that around that time they were starting to lose confidence in him because they were losing. So basically it didn't matter how famous he was, the players were now starting to think, hang on, this guy can't help us, going back to this selfish notion. Uh, and then things just started to turn. He said he says he doesn't think he did anything really differently. Um, he just hung on to his beliefs and gradually it worked for him. Uh, and then once they got on a roll, um, he became more successful and then he went to the next. I mean, but even then, down the line, he says he's a member of the, the only club that every top coach in the world is a member of, and that's the club of sacked coaches. So he's been sacked <laughs> plenty of times when the results didn't go for him, but he's also fantastically successful. You have to understand that the average, the average tenure of a top, top football manager is uh, less than two years. Yeah, well, that goes right up there with the top tenure of CEOs, I think, is about the same length of time. So there we are, all in parallel. Um, Chris, you know, you and I have talked about this on a number of occasions. One of the things I always quote you in saying is when asked, what does it take to get people to follow me? You say you have to win. If you're not winning, nobody's following. And that's true. There's, um, yeah, people often say what comes first, team spirit or winning. Uh, and I've never, I've never been to a club or at the bottom of the league and got no wins who's got fantastic team spirit. Basically, the team spirit comes as a result of winning, and that's why the coach has to take charge. One of the things I say to my players, and I don't know if people, other people say this, but I say ultimately we're going to do this my way because at the end of the year, if everything's gone wrong, they're not going to sack all you. They're going to sack me. So basically we're doing what I want, you know, ultimately when it gets right down to it. But if I can bring you along and convince you to do it, then obviously I've got a better chance of you you winning, which gives me a better chance of staying. But the players will always remain. The manager is the one that gets the, that gets the chop. It's the, you know, when the CEO gets a sack, they don't sack 400,000 people who are working in the factories. They sack the CEO. So ultimately, you have to take on that responsibility, and it becomes your, your decision. But, but in football, um, I suppose it's true in any sport, if you look at the, if you look at the, last, uh, the last NFL game of the season, the next day, 50% of the coaches get the sack. You know why? They didn't yeah. make the playoffs. They didn't win. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true in business as well, and it has to do with profitability or exactly. cost or time or whatever other metric it is that you're looking yeah. at. Exactly. Whatever, I, you con- whatever constitutes winning for your business or whatever, if you don't do it, you're not going to be there long. Yeah. yeah. It does also say how important it is to define what it means to win. It's a different language than what we usually do, and I, I like that phrasing here. So, in shadowing Carlo, is there Carlo Ancelotti? Is there anything else that you learned that you think is worth sharing about leadership in general? Yeah, I think um, I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned was 
that as, mu- as, as, as much as I watched him, I couldn't be him. I couldn't be that guy. Some of the things he did, I realised, were fantastic, but I just couldn't do them. I couldn't emulate them. A very simple example, there was a training match at one stage, and one of the players literally walked off the pitch. At that point, I would have got really angry. And I said to Carlo, where's he going? What are you doing? And Carlo said, leave it, leave it. So the guy walks off. Carlo then walks up to him after training and allowed me to be in the room and said to this particular guy, why did you walk off? He said, I walked off because another player just wasn't trying, he wasn't putting the effort in, why should I put the effort in? And Carlo says very calmly, he said, why do you, why do you reference the one bad player, not the 16 good players who are really trying hard? And the guy said, oh, that's a good point, coach, and just walked back. Now, in that incident... If that had been me, with my nature, I'd have probably had two fights. Uh, Carlo, so I learned I can't be that guy. I'm, I'm, no, I'm another guy. And so authenticity may be a managerial buzzword at the moment, but it's a great buzzword, and don't, don't ignore it just because it's fashionable. But it's really important. Just, you just need to be who you are. It turns out that Carlo is that fantastic guy. He, is, he does care, and he is a great coach, you know, and that's why, he's, that's why he's earning 10 million a year, and you and me are discussing this over at the phone. Okay. <laughs> we should get him on and have his point of view. So do you think your style or a different style would have been as effective? Do you think his is an ideal style or we just have to admit that some things I do well and some things I'm not going to do so well? No, I think there's a real there's a real key point here and it's for businesses very it, it's about the cultural fit. It's you know, when you're hiring a CEO, are you hiring him to maintain the culture or are you hiring him to change the culture. It's really important. If you're hiring him to maintain the culture, you know the type of person you want. Carlo nearly always comes into clubs after there's been a lot of volatility within the organization. So he'll follow managers who are high profile and dynamic and very uh, very confrontational, and he'll often follow those, and he's that safe pair of hands that calm everything down. But then... They'll, they'll get rid of him at the end of it. He, he says, they hire me because I keep everybody happy. They fire me because I keep everybody happy. You know, when, he's, when they're firing him, they're saying, the players are too comfortable. You're not driving them hard enough. They hire him because they're trying to calm the players down. So I think there's a cultural fit. You know, be sure what it is you're hiring that leader to do. Don't hire a leader in because he's been a great leader of a, you know, a volatile industry and hire him to be in a very stable industry. He might not be the right guy for you. So I think the, um, the cultural fit between style and, and goals is absolutely central, absolutely crucial. Yeah. We have a joke that we've said a number among those my coaching group that you, know, you put somebody in a turnaround and they do a brilliant job of a turnaround, meaning they shake things up, they drive change, and then you turn around and put them in another turnaround, and they shake things up and drive them, drive things forward. Do that three times in a row, and the only thing they know how to do is to shake things up and turn it around, but they don't stick around to make it stable. And here we are at the same time. You, you have a style, and it has to fit with what your need is. That's, that's right. You know, half of what you want, you know, not, not for the personality of the person you're hiring. Yeah. Okay. All right, Chris, we got like 30 seconds left. Any one last bit of advice for people about leading teams and motivating people? No. 
<laughs> Chris, that's the shortest answer I've ever gotten you out from you out of anything. All right. With me today is Chris Brady. Chris has done a lot of things in life, as you've heard, from being a Navy officer to being in the management program to setting up a business school and now to doing back to his love, which is in football. Um, He's written several books, two of them, The Rules of the Game, and the second, The 90-Minute Manager, and he's co-author with Carlo Ancelotti, The Quiet Leadership, about Ancelotti as a coach. Chris, I think the thing that I take away from this is actually a quote you attributed to somebody else, that people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And I think that sort of summarizes a lot of what you've said throughout all of this, that it's a matter of showing to people that we have a common thing that we're working towards and I care about you achieving your goals in the process. So, Chris, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Likewise, as always. Okay, so next week, we're going to be talking with Scott Sonnenschein, and the book we're talking about is Stretch, and it's really about how do you succeed within the existing constraints, and why do so many teams fail with brilliant resources, and others succeed with so little, and what does that mean about how you lead people and drive change in your own organization? Join us next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.